stay hungry, stay foolish. And we're back for part two of Stories, Dice and Rocks That Think with Byron Reese, part of the Exponential series here on The Innovation Show. Before we launch into that episode, I want to thank our sponsor Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services enabling businesses to create multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. Check out Zai at hellozai.com. Welcome back to part two of this excellent episode with Byron Reese. He is here on the line with me. Before we launch in, Byron, I, I was telling you before we came on air, I, I understand where you're going with the book. It's, it's great because I, I actually see it like frameworks or lenses that we get given throughout life or that w we were fortunate enough to awaken to. And the first was, uh, well, the great awakening. So the brain changed for whatever reason that was that we discussed in part one, then there is okay, well, the, the, the mind, then we come along, we have art, then we have communication through language, but language firstly to think and then to communicate then to write. And then we have limitations. And we get to a point where, yeah, we can only get so far with all that we need mathematical models then next to be able to increase how we can think and how we can plan and how we can predict the future. And then we need data. And then we're going to get on to part three or act three from the book, which is, <laughs> is the fantastic part. And I found it a little bit difficult, I was saying because I'm, I'm, I don't really like metrics, and I don't really like maths, etc. So I, I struggle slightly with act two, compared to act one, and I'm certainly going to enjoy act three, I think I've earned getting <laughs> act three. And I thought that overview would be helpful coming from you to describe what you what the goal was with the three act as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it reads a little bit like a morning at school, you get there and you got English class and you're like, oh, I love you. And then your next class is maths. And you're a little bit like, eh, not my, and then the next class, I think is going to be, I guess, computer science or something, I guess. Yeah. Any case, that's exactly right. Act one is about how uh, we learn to imagine the future. But you can't really like if, how do you know it's really going to happen if, if you're just like making stuff up? How likely is that to happen versus that? And that's the um, the dice section. It's about probability. And <clears throat> I know that sounds like chloroform in print. Like I know that, uh, <laughs> but it doesn't have any equations in it. It just has narrative that tries to walk through like, so the, the first question it asks is why do things happen the way they do? And uh, I, I, I would have made that an entire section because I enjoy writing it. I had to make that so dense. So, and if it's okay, I'll just whip through those off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I was gonna, I was gonna tee you up uh, as, as oh, I go kind ahead of pulled yes. nuggets. And if those nuggets are out of place, just let me know no, no. as well. Will we go for that? Go right ahead. Okay, so, so. Act two finds us in 17th century France. And yes, you kind of go a little bit back to go forward, but we're kind of stuck at 1654, essentially. And the mathematical framework known as probability theory is born a science for seeing into the future that we use to build the modern world. Great place to start over to you. Okay, well, um, 
I'm curious when I explained the so-called problem of points, were you, were you, was that too mathy or was that, did you understand like that part? Yeah, actually, <laughs> I, I'd love if you, uh, you introduced that as well, the, the idea of the points and the coin flips, etc. I thought that was great. Uh, no, you, you, I, I'm, I, I am actually, I think it's great. I'm just saying, from my brain, I found that a, a little bit dense, but it, it's not, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And it's, it's necessary. And you did a great job. And it's not, I don't want people thinking, oh, it's, it's really like mathematical equations and functional theories, etc. It's not at all. It's, it's narrative. And it's really well done. And you go all the way through to eugenics, which is fascinating. So I, I, uh, I, I loved it. I loved it. I just I was a little bit slower reading it is all. Oh, I understand. All right. So I'll, I'll go two ways with this one. I, I want to just set up what I was just talking about, which is uh, we, we come out of act one where we, we stayed for 50,000 years. And in that 50,000 years, we could imagine the future. And there uh, became different opinions on why it happens the way it does. And I, as I started to say, I could, I could write a whole section on that. So the, the, the first idea that people have uh, about why the future has fated to happen, things are pre-written. Somebody decided your future um, before you were born or something. And I quote, I think, William Blake of some are born to sweet delight and some are born to endless night. And that's just how it is. And so that was a pretty dominant belief. Uh, most of the ancient uh, civilizations had gods that assigned uh, your fate to you when you were born in uh, Greek myths, there were three women who would uh, measure out the string of your life and cut it at the end. And that was, that was it. Like you couldn't, you couldn't beat that. And so that was one way that, um, that, uh, people thought the future happened. And then another one would be, uh, a doctrine known as necessity. The future had to happen that way. It couldn't happen any other way. And I'm sure everybody listening has had the same thought that if, if we live in this mechanical universe where, you know, pool ball, a billiard ball hits another one, which hits another one, which hits another one, that's all knowable. Like if you know the initial condition, then you can know what's going to happen. And that's the doctrine of uh, necessity that that things had to happen the way that they did. That you stubbing your toe in the morning is nothing but the inevitable outcome of a series of events that began 20 billion years ago. And interestingly, the Enlightenment thinkers were rooting for that one. Like, that's what they hoped. Because determinism kind of meant you couldn't beat, I mean, I'm sorry, necessity meant you couldn't beat the future, but you could know it. And it didn't require anything supernatural. And maybe even there were even a few laws like Newton had that would help you kind of uh, predict it. And so they, everybody was, the science minded people were kind of rooting for that. And that's what they, uh, they wanted uh, there to be. Now they were really disturbed by uh, Newton because Isaac Newton, you know, the quintessential scientist, like if you had to pick one, you'd say, Oh, Isaac Newton. Um, I would. He, you know, comes up with gravity and it's a, it's a mystical force that nobody knew how it, why, why it worked that way. And nobody still really knows why 
it is that way. And they used to, they were, they were very suspicious of Newton because it was like, Oh, you're reintroducing magic back into, uh, our understanding of the future. I mean, I've, why the universe works the way it does. And they didn't like that. And the thing about it, well, I, I won't go too deep down that hole then. Um, and then I, I, I told the story of how that view got a real boost at 9.33 a.m. on Friday, April 22nd, 1715. I love that it's a minute you can point to. And what had <laughs> happened is uh, months earlier, Edmund Haley of Haley's Comet fame had predicted a solar eclipse, a, a total eclipse. And that wouldn't be anything if it was like going over the Scottish Highlands or someplace where there, but it was going over the heart of London. And so for weeks, there were all these like, uh, what are those called? Playbills or what are they called? Like the big posters that say, you know, the sun's going to vanish for uh, four and a half minutes on this date. And lo and behold, it did. Like they only got it uh, off by about uh, a minute or two. And uh, in the path, they were really close. And everybody was like, okay, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to throw in my lot with um, those people. Then there's a third reason people thought things happened. That's a strange one. It's called synchronicity. I still don't wrap my mind around it, but I don't, I, as, as an example, I don't believe in astrology, but I'm really intrigued that people who do, um, why they believe it works. Like why? Uh, I'm, you know, I get it, but what, what do you think is the mechanism? So, and then you think about all those years where they, they, they read chicken entrails or they looked at spots on the liver of a, of a, of a goat and they could read the future and like, why, why would that tell you the future? And the answer is because everything in the universe is connected to everything else. And, uh, because of that, you could study, you know, the sweat stain on the back of your gym shirt and predict the future with it because it is influenced by what influences everything else. But only if you know how to read it, the people that used to read the chicken and trails on the livers, they worked really hard at it. Like they had textbooks and models and tests and all the rest to, to learn how to do it the right way. And if you think about it, if the moon can cause the oceans on the earth to rise and fall without touching them, is it really so strange that stars could influence our lives or that, um, oh, I don't know, a voodoo doll could work. You put a pin in it and, and somebody, you know, 200 miles away goes, ouch, uh, could that work? And that's called synchronicity. And that's kind of still with us. Uh, in a lot of ways, that view of that, that kind of, if everything's connected, you can read one thing, uh, you can look at one thing and know something about something else. And then, uh, those were the kind of the three schools of thought on why, uh, things happen. You'll notice the one that wasn't in there and that is randomness, that things just happen for random reasons and there's no rhyme or reason. And, and if that were true, it would seem uh, that we're sort of lost because if the future really is random, then 
what can you say about it? And I'm I'm just going to jump to that because uh, that's my visual aid. And that is, if you had asked me, you know, many years ago, uh, if you flip a coin a thousand times, how many times will it come up heads? Well, I've been trained to say, oh, around 500. You know, just, I guess I've known that forever. And, but only because somebody told me I didn't ever flip a thousand coins, right? And statistically, the amazing thing is that the odds of you getting less than 400 heads or more than 600 heads are one in billions, billions. So if you flip a coin, because I would have said, oh, flip a coin a thousand times. I don't know. It's going to be all over the map. One time you're going to get a hundred heads and one time you're going to get 800 heads. And one time you're going to get 502. No rhyme or reason to it. And that isn't true. Like I still have trouble with that. And, um, it's illustrated with this thing called a Galton board, which you may have seen in a science museum. Uh, I'm about to flip it upside down. And these little beads, these little BBs are going to fall through this funnel. And when they do, they're going to hit a piece of plastic and they can go to the left or the right randomly, either one. And then they're going to hit another piece of plastic, go to the left or the right. And they're going to hit another piece of plastic, go to the left or the right. And if you flip it, what happens is every time you flip it, you get a normal curve. And how can that be? Like, why isn't it a U sometimes? And why isn't it flat sometimes? And this is something we didn't know that in randomness, we can actually get high degrees of predictability. And to me, that's a big idea. Uh, so that's kind of the setup is that we had, well, I'm sorry, there was a fourth way uh, that people thought the future unfolded um, that I left out. Free will. The future happens because of the choices people make, the decisions that people make. People are actually the drivers of the future, not, and the choices we make, not synchronicity, not the um, necessity, and not the faiths. It's just us. And then the one that nobody kind of was on anybody's radar was, was uh, randomness. So that leads into section two. It says, we want to predict the future. And, and we think we know how it happens. And uh, we want to build a science around that. And to do that required us, there were five things about the universe we didn't know that we had to learn in order to invent this math. And I won't uh, bore you with the five, but I do want to give an example of the math problem nobody could solve. Now, this is called the problem of points. It's a math problem that had been around for hundreds of years and people talked about it and they couldn't solve it. Everybody kind of had their own solutions, but people kind of knew none of them felt that right. So let me set the problem up and let's just go through it kind of leisurely because seldom you get to actually put your mind in the mind of somebody from 400 years ago, especially a Blaise Pascal or somebody like that. So here's the setup. <clears throat> you have two people playing a game. Uh, you have uh, Harry and Tom, and they're flipping a coin that can come up heads or tails. So H for Harry and heads and T for tails and Tom. Uh, 
And uh, what they say is, okay, we're going to play this game. We're going to flip a coin five times. And uh, Harry gets a point every time heads come up. And Tom gets a point every time tails come up. And they're, uh, they get through. And whoever has the most points at the end wins the, the cash pot. And then after three tosses, the score is two to one. And the game is interrupted. That's the important part. Why the game's interrupted, I'm not entirely sure. I think they dropped their coin and it rolled under a refrigerator or something. I don't know. But the game ended. And the question is, how do you split the pot? What's the fair way to split the pot? Harry's ahead two points to one. And there were supposed to be two more tosses. So I said, how would you solve that? So the first and most common answer was, you can't. You don't know what's going to happen in the future. So there's no way that's not a, that's not even a math problem. Like that's something else, but it, it's not math. What is what they said. Then other people said, well, the fairest way to split the pot is 50, 50. But then Harry's like, wait a minute, I was winning. Then other people are like, well, Harry has twice as many points as, um, Tom, he's got two to one. So he should get two parts of the pot and Tom should get one part of the pot. And that sort of seemed okay until you say, well, wait a minute. What if they were playing to a million tosses and the score was two to one? Would you really still say Tom's, uh, Harry's lead is so overwhelming that he deserves twice as much as Tom? And she say, no, no, no. Then other people are like, well, why don't we cut the deck another way and say, well, how many points do they each need? So Tom needs, uh, uh, Harry needs one more and Tom needs two. But again, you get the, the same problem that, uh, you, anyway, so they go through all these things. And then you say, well, how would you, so nobody could solve it. And so these two guys, uh, Fermat and Pascal, start writing letters to each other to try to solve it. And they do. And they didn't just solve it. They built the math to solve problems like it. And, and the way you solve it is you say, there are a couple of ways, but the straightforward way is you can say, okay, okay, they were going to flip the coin two more times. And uh, let's pretend they were going to flip the coin two more times. There's only four things that could happen. You could have two heads, two tails, tail than a heads and heads and a tail. And in those four things that can happen and only one of them does Tom win the tail guy win. And in three of them, Harry wins. And that's the answer. Harry gets three quarters of it and Tom gets a quarter. And the reason, uh, yeah. And, and, and the big kind of mental leap was Nobody really thought about, okay, there's things that could happen in the future. And I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to put, start putting numbers on things in the future. Like I said, so crazy obvious. Is it going to rain tomorrow? 80% chance. To us, it's reflexive. They, they didn't have any notion of anything like that. So Pascal and Fermat are writing these letters and uh, they, they come up with a solution, but then they build the math for it because 
you could imagine a harder version of it. There are three people flipping coins and the score is 182 to 64 to nine. How do you split the pot? So they had to figure the math out. And when they figured this math out, they started sending all these letters around as they were wont to do. And everybody went crazy. Like, oh my gosh, they finally solved it. And we see how they did it. And then within like five years, we went from nobody being able to solve that problem to not only that, but everybody could solve it. It was like child's play at that point. I think I put in the book, you don't even get a, a smiley face sticker on your homework. And uh, in in, 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 in when you're 10 years old for doing that problem, like it doesn't matter anymore. And so at, at that point, people started doing uh, building statistics and probability out so that they could predict what was going to happen. And that, believe it or not, is just the first two chapters of the math uh, of the probability section. I can't call it a math section. Like that sounds like chloroform in print. Like, oh yeah, I want to read a, a book about math. Um, but the probability section, I guess that doesn't sound any better actually. Uh, and that's the, the, how that sets up. That's the beginning of that part. Yeah. And, and, uh, I, I loved, I loved what you were doing because what it, what it reveals is kind of going, well, we were at this impasse or we or so we thought. And what it what it did to me was actually kind of go, and I often ponder this, and I think it's from doing the show, and you've had your own podcast as well. And one of the great things is it's constantly stimulating thought and kindling new ideas for you. And one of the ones that's constantly niggling like a buzzing fridge for me is what other things have we not solved that we're going to look back on someday and kind of go, oh man, how how did we do that so wrong for such a long time? death and illness and aging and all these things that we you know it was staring us in the face i i often think of poor old semmelweis and the hand washing and and you know it was so obvious but nobody believed them and then everybody washes their hands and child mortality uh, decreases massively and and so many of those and you say really why not earlier and it was because of the frameworks and the ways of thinking and that that was really the message i got from that I mean, you're right about what we don't know. I remember 20 or 30 years ago, uh, a David Letterman top 10 list, and it was like top 10 headlines from 2020 or something. And one of them was Oat Bran, the silent killer, right? Like one of these really healthy things or, you know, jogging the silent killer uh, that, that we're going to, that we're going to. So once all of a sudden, and you have to understand there was a conceptual leap, undoubtedly, but uh, there was also the fact we still, uh, Arabic numerals were new in that part of the world, so they were still using Roman numerals, which are notoriously difficult to multiply and divide with. They didn't have all the uh, notation that we had. They didn't even have the equal sign, so it, it was... Um, they had a, a dearth of of a, like formalness around the math, but once these two letters, these all of these letters were exchanged between Pascal and Fermat, uh, everybody kind of went math crazy, and I love this part. So the first thing that happened is, uh, well, one of the things that happened is countries used to back in the day make money, raise raise money by selling annuities. We didn't discuss this yesterday, did we? I didn't think so. Uh, selling annuities. 
Now, an annuity is where you come in, you give them some money up front, $100, $100. And then every year for the rest of your life, they pay you some small amount, $5, say. And you can imagine that it's a, it's a, it's way a, a bet that the government's taking out on you. Like they kind of want to sell them to sick people, uh, right? Because if you're too, like, if, if you sign up for an annuity, they're going to just start sending cards in the mail that say it's never too late to start doing drugs. And, you know, they're just going to try to entice you to take up skydiving and uh, all of that. Um, so the, the key to pricing an annuity is how long is that person going to live? If two people walk in and one's 20 and one's 80, who do you think is going to live longer? Like we know it's the 20 year old. And if the 20 year old is going to live longer, then uh, you should charge them more for the annuity. And then the 80 year old person charge them very little to get the same amount of money a year. Cause you don't think you're going to pay them that long and that, um, but, but here's the, here's the interesting thing. Uh, they didn't know that they didn't, they, they didn't know that the older you were, the more likely you were going to die in the next year. Like that just, nobody knew that. And on the one hand, it's forgivable because if you, we don't have people, we don't have many people that die young like that. And we're used to older people passing. If you lived in a world where people died young all the time, like, you know, mule's going to kick somebody in the head and kill them. And it could be that 30 year old or that 40 year old or that 80 year old. You don't know who the mule's going to kick. So they both have equal, uh, they all three have equal, equal chances of, of dying in the next year. And that's what they thought. Now, that's why it's forgivable. How would you know? Uh, the reason it's unforgivable is you could actually make a mortality table, which is a prediction of how old people are going to, how likely they are to die next year by spending one afternoon walking around a cemetery. Because you could walk around the cemetery and you would look at every headstone and you would say, okay, they died at uh, 53. Okay. And then you go to the next one. Okay. They died at uh, 71 and so forth. And when you wrote all that down, you would count them up and you'd say, wow, a lot of people died in their eighties and then the seventies, sixties, and very relatively few people down here. And then like one thing after the other, like that, where we started putting the meat on the bones of, of probability. And that is what slowly kind of built the modern world we have now, which we not only think about the future and the past, but we conceptualize them probabilistically. And that is something that, you notice when I was going through fate and necessity and all of that, the future happening probabilistically didn't ever even, like that would not have even made sense to them. At that point, that's when we started uh, seeing the future probabilistically, which is not anything that anybody would have, would have made sense to anybody back in, in the day. There was a few players, I'd love a few, if you um, would share a few uh, characters involved in the story. So th there was uh, Pascal, for example, in Fermat, and then there was also Cardano, who's the cryptocurrencies named after. And then there was also Galileo made a little cameo in there as well. And Voltaire, I, I love the story of of Galileo getting asked by one of the Medici, Medici family to kind of go, hey, I need you to do this job for me and he's like kind of going oh i'll do it but begrudgingly and then he does it in like he doesn't do it in classical latin <laughs> and then also voltaire uh 
gaming the system because he understood the system. Yeah, you know, that all of those are a lot of fun because uh, what they asked Galileo to do was fig figure if you lived back in the day, there was only one place you would really deal with where probability would touch your life, and that would be in games of chance and gambling. Uh, they did do that. And there's some strange things uh, related to that that they kind of intuited, but that was the only real thing they had. And so that was right. The Medici's went to Galileo and they're like, um, can you figure out how likely different dice tosses are? Because they wanted to know, you know, what to bet on and what not to. The Voltaire story is really funny because it's the kind of thing that if it happened today, it wouldn't last five minutes. So here was, here was the setup. The, um, uh, the French government decided they needed to raise money and they were going to hold a lottery. Next to annuities, lotteries were the way they did it. They said, we're going to do a lottery. And then we're going to do it by uh, essentially neighborhoods in, in, in Paris and France. And so there are a lot of little lotteries, or relatively small lotteries. And people, and if you bought a bond, uh, you, uh, you got entered in the lottery. And like a, like, a, like a savings bond, if you loan the government some money, you were entered in this lottery. So not only were you going to get your money back, but you had a chance of winning. And the way they wrote the rules, it didn't matter how big of a bond you bought, you still got entered in the lottery. I think that like uh, was how he made a big chunk of all of his money. I, I could be wrong on that, but uh, when I when I read it, it was like you know, ka-ching. Nowadays, and it just it just illustrates how little they kind of can could conceive of it of of things like probabilities. Just how I don't know how would you say it? unmathy the world was. A lot of times the people in the books that you rattle off are names we've all heard, Voltaire and Galileo and all that. But every now and then somebody just would come up that was uh, just out of nowhere. And there were men a hat, hat shop, a haberdashery in uh, London. They also sold buttons and ribbon. And that was his career. And he became the world's first demographer. And so what he did is every uh, week in uh, London, they would publish a list of everybody who died and why, how they died. And it was mainly because they were tracking plagues when you would want to know if there was like some surge of, of a plague. So they would, they would track these, uh, all the deaths. And he went and found those for like the last uh, hundred years. I mean, there were gaps in it, but he found many of them and he put together all of this stuff. Like he could actually tell that, he made all of these intuitive leaps like, oh, I can estimate the population of London. I can tell more people are moving in than, than exiting. I can do all of these things. The, the guy, John Grant was his name. I, I absolutely loved him. This is the haberdasher you were talking about, the guy who was just curious and he's just started to do this stuff. And what, what I loved what you did was you, you put us in the shoes of those people in that period where everything was so new and there was so much opportunity and there was so much opportunity to use your imagination and try things like you were saying like newton for example putting needles in his eyes and and experiments like that you were there was so much to discover you know and and there probably still is it's just not as obvious maybe now 
And that was one thing it did for me was to just reignite that curiosity and the opportunity for things to discover, which I'm sure we're going in Act Three as well. But I thought so. So we got to death and taxes, which we all get to. Excuse the pun. And that was where Grant, for example, was finding out the you know the amount of deaths and the statistics, childbirths. For example, you say everybody thought everybody died at the same kind of had the same probability of death until Grant did this work, which was was just fascinating. But we're we're at the point now. Well, what else is this good for? And one of them was for laws. And I thought about this. Here's here's a question for you. What's the probability of ever hearing this sentence ever in a podcast that goes as follows? Tycho Bray was a Danish astronomer in the 1500s most famous today for the gold nose that he wore. <laughs> so I thought that was a great way to tee you up for laws. Returning to this, to the bell curve, I think we can all agree that it is a product of randomness, right? Like there's nothing, it's just beads falling down, bouncing one way or the other, and there's more ways to get to the middle. Now, here's a big, like, a big question to mull. So, all of that, the bell curve is is based on randomness. There was a the a person early on who kind of didn't discover the bell curve, but but applied it. Was trying to find some data that he could graph, and he graphed um, the chest sizes of uh, the of a of a regiment, a Scottish regiment. And I think it had to do, they were ordering uniforms or something. They had to measure everybody's chest. And so they had like thousands of these measurements of different people's chest sizes. And if you graph them, you get a bell curve. And it's like, well, why? I mean, chest size isn't random. Then another strange thing they noticed was that, let's say you are following an astronomical object, a, a planet or something. And every night you take a reading to see where it is. And your readings, because you don't have very good equipment, are all over the place. But when you when you um, take all of those measurements of where it is and you take the average and then you graph how wrong the other ones are, they're a bell curve. And you say, well, wait a minute, bell curve is supposed to be randomness, not error, not mistakes. Uh, and so all of a sudden we started realizing there were these bell curves all over the place. And I think one of the examples I give uh, is about in the United States, in whatever reference year I use, say 2015, 160 people died at work by being electrocuted. The next year, 160, the next year, 164 died. Same number, really, right? If you look at automobile casualties in the United States um, per year and you pick a year, it's going to be something like 30,000. And then you pick an adjacent year and it's going to be within 500 of that. And so you have to say, how can that be? How can electrocutions at work be the same from year to year to year? And it is, again, this thing. Why? Well, in order for you to um, electrocute yourself at work, it's essentially a 
some your little bead has to end up way over here. You have to do like 10 things wrong. Uh, like it has to be hot and you didn't know it's hot and you have to not have your, have not to have checked beforehand, uh, 10 things you would have to do wrong. And, uh, that's going to happen a pretty constant amount of time. And that's a big, crazy idea. You just have to like wrap your head around. So early on when they noticed these bell curves, they, they, they said, why would, why would the number of, oh, I don't know, murders in France resemble a bell curve. So let's just graph um, murders by, I don't know, every October for the last 10 years. They're going to look like that. They're going to vary. There's going to be a center and there's going to be things that are way above it, but very few and way below it, but very few. And then a bunch that are close to it. So I know it's a lot of stuff, but the crazy thing is that if this is a product of randomness and this appears in our lives, does that not mean that our lives are random? That's wow. Because not only was there high predictability in the number of murders, but then if you said, well, I'm just really interested in the number of people who are murdered and their bodies are thrown in um, the scene river or something like that. And that too is, or, I'm just going to look at murders and I'm just going to look at murder weapons like, uh, you know, bludgeoned with a blunt instrument. And that's the same year to year. And then you start thinking, this is crazy. Like what's going on there. And that's what's going on. And so what people started thinking was, well, how do we hold anybody responsible? Like there are going to be 10 murders next year, no matter what, like that, there were 10 this year, nine last year, and seven last year, and 14 the year before. So there's going to be about 10 murders. Somebody's got to do them. And if somebody's got to do them, then uh, how do you punish them for it? We, we aren't completely over that way of thinking, by the way, because if somebody, say, commits a murder, uh, willfully plan it out, all of that, uh, we say, well, they're responsible for that, right? So they're found guilty. 27 people saw them do it and they go before the judge for sentencing. And uh, the judge, uh, the, the, the thing says, you got to understand my, my client grew up poor and wasn't able to go to school and was abused and had all these bad things happen to them. So we want to ask for leniency. And so the judge is like, well, all right, like you had a hard life. So instead of putting you away for 40 years, we're going to put you away for 20. Well, what are you saying there? You're actually saying they're still responsible, but somehow their circumstances make them less responsible. And that's what the, the prevailing thought of the day is that they're going to be these murders and they're going to be the people that do them are going to be like almost the most misfortunate people. And it's wrong for us just to blame them and throw them in jail. And that was kind of the thinking of all of that going on in people's head when they discovered the uh, the normal curve. And then they saw it applied to life and they realized it's all about randomness. And that uh, is a story of the normal distribution. But it's really the story about how we got it. We struggled to this day to understand why it is and what it means. And then um, we, we have a hard time connect. I have a hard time connecting the dots that it reflects a fundamental randomness underneath everything. If 
that was Gauss and the Gaussian curves. That, um, then we had Bayes' theorem, 1761. And then what I thought was, again, and, and this is the way I constructed the, the, the book in my head was, um, so we're at this point where now we have theorem, now we have, we have models, now we can think at a different level. But the thing we're lacking is data. And we need data to fill that. And to, like you said, like we had Grouse looking around for, for data and he starts looking in around the cemeteries. Then governments, as you say, is their nature, the bureaucracies that they're, they're like, great, now we can have data for everything. <laughs> and then we can track everything because that became really important. And you then go as far as talking about phonology, which I thought was fascinating. So maybe we jump there because again, I love the way you pepper the book with lovely nuggets of information like this. So there was a guy named Caitlay who was the person who really just went kind of normal curve crazy. And the, and he saw them everywhere. And maybe he was a bit aggressive in where he saw them. Uh, but his big problem is he just didn't have any data to speak of. You know, Scottish regiment chest sizes were one thing. They, um, It's funny because years later, uh, we got a lot of measurements of, of, of people. It's really something because when you think of the chest measurements of the Scottish regiment, they're the people in the middle. And to Caitlin, those are the perfect people. And if that, like, that's the correct measurement, that's how big your chest size should be. And if you think about it, it's a really industrial revolution way of thinking about things, because uh, if, if you're make if you're manufacturing something on an assembly line, you're not really measuring what's my best car I made. You're kind of, what's my average car? Like any variance from the model is considered an error. Even if it's better, it's considered an error. I guess that's the way to think about it. So he saw that like people in the middle, that was the perfect thing and uh later somebody took a bunch of measurements of of men and women and found all the averages and made two statues of the perfect man and the perfect woman uh based on all those statistical averages so they made these statues of like the perfect man and the perfect woman those somehow became regarded as ideals and anything that varied from them was considered uh, uh considered bad and you could see how that um, could be mis, not only misunderstood, but terribly abused. So enter a guy named Francis Galton, of whom we named the Galton board. He was in a fascinating guy, like uh, who did all these like adventures and like, he did all these things and in his spare time, you know, he, he worked on statistics and he, he came up with something called regression to the mean. And I didn't really understand this until I was writing the book. I was fortunate that uh, there was, there's a math professor at university of Texas at Austin, which is where I live, who would meet with me and explain this all to me very slowly. And, uh, but the way to think about regression to the mean is if you're really tall or really um, smart or really anything, odds are your children are going to be less so than you. Odds are they're going to be less so. 
and then their children uh, even less so because things have a tendency to reconverge on that middle, to, re- to, to converge on average. And you say, well, why would that be? Why would that be? And the reason's pretty simple, actually. Let's pretend this is a, a distribution of people and um, by height. And if you're really tall, you're over here, right? You're one of these really tall people. Your ball bounced to the right eight times out of 10 or something like that. And so you're really tall. If you just take all these beads here, all the tall people, and then you feed them back in the top, they're not going to go to the right. Like they're not going to just go there. They're going to make a new normal curve around the middle. And everything's going to get closer to the mean, closer to the mean. And then if you did it again, well, let's take the tall people, the few tall offspring of the tall people and put them back in. It's going to be a normal curve. And so if you can't beat it. You can't beat it. And so it's really interesting that eugenics said you could. Like what we could do, said eugenics, is we could improve the species by uh, advantageous breeding. So we would just basically only let people up here breed and we would discourage however we want, however. Uh, people from here and over time the the beads are going to keep moving further and further and they're going to get taller smarter and all these things but they're not and i just can't get over the fact that galton was the champion of eugenics galton created the phrase and the math of regression to the mean like if anybody should have known better I have a young teenage son, and I I started to tell him this, and I connected it to Galton, and he's like, wait a minute, how how would he have done that if he's the regression to the mean guy? How could he say you could make it forever better? And I was like, exactly, how could he? So he started advocating for this and writing about it, and he wasn't like, I mean, I put in the book, he's no Nazi, like, he really thought like, oh, this is the smart way forward. Like, I mean, look, there's no way around the fact it's a terrible thing. And even his writing about it, about coercing people. And I mean, like it's a highly problematic at all different levels, but he wasn't uh, coming from, you know, a play anyway, I'll just let that stay. It is. He should have <laughs> known better and he didn't. And so uh, that went on for a while. And then uh, different countries passed laws. I mean, sorry, different states in the United States passed laws that allowed them to forcibly sterilize people. And then that eventually went to the Supreme Court of the United States, where uh, it was upheld. And it was upheld. It was no 5-4 squeaker. It was 8-1. to There was only one person who said, no, 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 you can't. Uh, force people, you can't forcibly sterilize people, you can't do that. And, uh, you know, it was it was advocated for in the interest of the state, like, the state's going to have to take care of these increasingly, uh, these offspring that are not favored, the state's going to have to take care of them. And therefore, the state has a compelling interest in, um, in sterilizing people. And that went on for a really uh, long time and it the last forced sterilization in the united states happened 
1981. And then, you know, what you and I were chatting about off, off camera was uh, that's where, where the Nazis got the idea was they read Oliver Wendell Holmes's uh, Supreme Court decision. I mean, that is a, that is a person uh, who, you know, he wrote the de decision defending it. This, this like institutional institution. He shook hands with both John Quincy Adams and John F. Kennedy. Like, like that's how long his span was. And he's the one who wrote this majority decision upholding it. And, uh, and I, you know, I, and, and that's it. And then it, finally, you know, the Nazis did it. And now, of course, uh, there's anyway, the Nazis did it and they, they got it, unfortunately, largely from scientific writing. And, and that's the sad story of that. We only had one other similar thing, which was like forced lobotomies. And, and it was the same logic. Person who developed that procedure won the Nobel Prize for it. Worst Nobel ever. And, uh, and, and so it's troubling that like the tendency to uh, devalue other people's life, to say it's worth less for whatever reason. It's uh, a discouraging that is not just pervasive, but still very, very common. Uh, it's, it's somehow reflexive, like they don't, their life's not worth living uh, is what they would, would say about these forced sterilizations. L loads of stuff in in there about even you know your your level of expertise byron for for those of you don't know had a magnificent podcast he's paused on it for the moment but uh main mainly focused on ai and artificial intelligence machine learning all those things and indeed the fourth age uh, focuses heavily on that and act three is we're going there as well because what what this talks about and uh, i mentioned to you we had this wonderful guest on the show angela saini where we talked about the science of race, uh, you know, it was it was a man-made science. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, you know, we all, you know, as you talk about, we all came from the same areas. We all had one language. We were one, and we had this awakening. It wasn't like some people were smarter than the others. It was just an awakening. But um, I, I often think about my my business is called Edge Behavior, and it's because of the curve that that there's magic at the at the edges if you embrace the edges and if you think about that even from a neurodiversity perspective just because in an organization the people who are who are most accepted are, are the, in the middle in the the top of the curve doesn't mean that they're superior in any way they they may be able to speak the most common language of the business etc and it often alienates people at the edges then and i i think that's just a great tragedy of even the business world and then the other thing is you know, it always reminds me when I see those curves of the diffusion of innovations, and it's just the same, the same curve again. And oftentimes, the things at the edges are often ignored until they become normal, until they're accepted by the mean. And this is a great tragedy of so many great innovators and great great change makers, great paradigm shifters. It takes time for for the middle to accept the edge. Act two started in 1654. And then um, we ended in 1954 because what happened is all that math that we were doing, we did with paper and pencils and slide rules. And that's how we built the modern world with uh, lots of chalkboards and, and all of that. And we, we said to ourselves, you know, 
you know, uh, maybe there's we can build machines. Like we we built machines so we didn't wear our muscles out. Why don't, can't we build thinking machines that keep us from wearing our minds out doing tedious math like this? So we said, let's build machines that can apply statistics, uh, probability and uh, statistics. And, and let's hook sensors up to them so we don't even have to input data into them. And the hope is that if they collect enough data and we build them well enough, they can predict the future with unerring accuracy. That They can tell us the future is with as much confidence as they can tell us the present. And so there was nothing, no new invention, uh, no new technique like the normal curve or regression to the mean or standard deviation or all of that, what happened is we just learned how to do it better and faster and cheaper. And that's act three, it's artificial intelligence. Byron, for people who want to follow you, find out about your other books and also uh, win a copy of this. I've mentioned I have a copy up for grabs. Just sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter and you'll be in with a chance, but also do buy a copy. And when you buy a copy, pre-order like Byron said, it really helps the author. It helps get your get you into the Amazon bump as well. And then if you do buy a copy, leave a review also helps the algorithm. We live in this algorithmic and society now, unfortunately. So that's uh, so important for the author as well. But Byron, where can people find you? I'm the easiest person in the world. Fine. I, my name is Byron Reese, and I'm 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 Byron Reese uh, dot com. I'm Byron Reese at Gmail. My LinkedIn is Byron Reese and the advantage of getting in early and having an unusual name. Absolutely. Pleasure. Always speaking to you, man. Author of Stories, Dice and Rocks That Think, How Humans Learn to See the Future and Shape It. Friend of the Innovation Show, Byron Reese. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Another excellent episode of the Exponential Series here on the Innovation Show with thanks to our sponsor, Zai boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to create multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. Check out Zai at hellozai.com and see you very soon.